0: Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by our host and star of this show, Jerry Trupiano. This is On the Record with Jerry Trupiano, episode 350 here on our network. Before we bring Jerry on and, and introduce our special guest tonight, just want to say thank you to two groups. First, our audience, closing in on 60,000 subscribers. We appreciate your support. 74 countries, grassroots MLB front offices. We appreciate your push. Make sure you give this episode five stars and write some nice comments because we battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in Major League Baseball. And second, to our first sponsor that we welcomed down to the show, Blackout Coffee. Their slogan is Be Awake, Not Woke. If you go to our, in the show notes, we'll have a link, and we also have it on social media. Click on either one of those. It'll take you to the site. Type in the code DAVID, capital D-A-V-I-D, with the number 20 after it, and you'll get 20% off your first purchase. Pass it on to friends. Uh, we we want to make sure we support our friends at Blackout. You'll get 15% in perpetuity. So love friends that love coffee, love baseball, and, and certainly give us discounts. They're friends for life, Jerry. So, Jerry, welcome back to your show.
1: Uh, thank you, David. Tonight we've got or this episode. We have one of my favorite people, one of the most interesting people we know in this business, a former broadcaster. With the Baltimore Orioles, the San Diego Padres, uh, uh, known mostly as an Emmy Award-winning comedy writer, shows such as, you talk about legendary shows, MASH, Cheers, Frasier, The Simpsons, Wings, Everybody Loves Raymond, Becker, Dharma, and Greg. He's a screenwriter, a director, producer, author, cartoonist, playwright. Ken Levine, have I missed anything?
2: Uh Benny Hahn is chef, but uh that's usually not in my resume.
1: Are are you accurate when you flip the, the shrimp?
2: <laughs> no, that's why I, I've lost a few fingers, so I'm gonna have to give it up.
1: I missed one of the clubs that you were broadcaster for, the the Seattle Mariners. How can I forget that?
2: That's right. You know, one of the great franchises in sports history. Do you miss it? Oh I do. I miss it terribly. Yeah, I I love doing baseball play by play. Do you miss it?
1: Oh, it's, it's like I lost my right arm to be honest with you. I miss it a lot. Yeah. It gets in your blood, doesn't it?
2: It really does. It's it's great fun and uh, the whole world of it. Um you know, yeah, there's there's certainly frustrations, but uh you know, I enjoyed the travel. I certainly enjoyed the camaraderie you know, with all of the other announcers and baseball people, uh, managers, coaches, players, uh, it's, it's a, a unique world that you can't just buy into. And, um, you know, I, I really cherish all those people and miss them.
1: Is it, is it light years, the difference between baseball
2: and Hollywood? Uh, no, there are things that are similar and things that are very different. Um, you know, I always say when people say, so what's the difference between, uh, baseball and writing a script? And I say, you know, in baseball, I can't change the ending. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, in, in terms of, I would say in terms of what is similar that, the people involved are, are very passionate about their profession. I think uh, most of the people involved uh, appreciate how rare it is to get one of those jobs. And, and I think they, they recognize that and don't just take it for granted.
1: What what was uh, first, like the chicken or the egg, uh, the baseball passion or the passion for (laughs) for the egg? Yeah, or the passion for writing? Uh,
2: I would say the passion for baseball. Uh, In 1958, when I was a mere lad, the Dodgers came to Los Angeles, and I remember one night my father was sitting in our little breakfast nook in Reseda, California, in the San Fernando Valley, and he was listening two of the ball game. And I heard Vince Scully's voice for the first time. And I said, who's that? And he said, that's Vince Scully. He's the announcer for the Dodgers. And I sat with my father and I listened. And within 10 minutes, I just fell in love with the voice and the cadence and the sound of the crowd and the background. And uh, I fell in love with the Dodgers and Vin Scully and baseball. You know, all kids dream of becoming professional baseball players. And most reach a certain age where they realize they just don't have the skill to make it. And for me, it was seven. So when I heard Vin Scully, it was the first time I thought like, wow. You can be an announcer and you can travel with the team and you could be part of it. And you could go to exotic places like Cincinnati and Pittsburgh for free that someone else is paying for it. Oh, my God. This sounds like a great job. So from the time I was eight, I always wanted to be a baseball announcer.
1: Nobody did it better than Vinny, did they?
2: Nope. Nope, he is the absolute Mozart of the craft.
1: I I think you you and I have been lucky. You you got to meet and, and work with your childhood hero Vince Scully. I got to meet and work with my childhood hero Jack Buck and, and the commonality between two great announcers, they were both great people.
2: Yeah, they really were. Um and, and I got a chance to meet and and talk to Jack Buck, too, a a little bit uh, during the course of my career. But yeah, you know, there's that old saying that you don't want to meet your heroes because they'll disappoint you. But that was not the case with, with Vince Scully. When I was doing Dodger Talk for a while and I would see Scully in the press box every night, he would see me, and he would go, "Hi, Kenny." And it was like, "Oh my God, the prettiest girl in school knows my name."
1: <laughs> hey, what? Let, let, as just as an aside, it, it just popped in my head. Tell tell us about—is uh, it Hollywood and Levine? Is that your blog?
2: That's my podcast. Podcast. Okay. Yeah, I had a blog called By Ken Levine for 16 years and it's still up and you can read all of my nonsense about my various careers and whatnot but I've had a podcast for 7 years and I'm on episode 350 uh it's weekly and it's available uh wherever you get your podcast apple and spotify and stitcher and all the places that David mentioned um but it's uh, a combination of interviews with people in hollywood and also in sports i've had al michael's and joe buck and jason benetti and uh, you know any number of uh, sports casters on there too but i also have actors and directors and studio uh, executives and uh casting directors lots of writers uh writers who whose work you've known and appreciated for years, but you don't know their names. So I, I have the interviews and also I do episodes where I tell old war stories about my days in Hollywood and, and some baseball from, from time to time, you know, and I'll play some air checks of me calling games that, that sort of thing.
1: So how does a guy living the life of a major league baseball broadcaster get to Hollywood.
2: Well, I got to Hollywood first. Uh, Actually, I didn't live too far from Hollywood since I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. And really, my first career path was as a top 40 disc jockey. I went to UCLA and I graduated and got a degree in psychology, which has only helped me in writing Frazier and psycho babble. But uh, I became a top 40 DJ. I used the name Beaver Cleaver because I wanted a name that was easy for people to remember. And I bounced around the country. I was in San Bernardino and Bakersfield and Detroit, San Diego, San Francisco and Los Angeles. And I remember I was doing All Nights in San Bernardino. This was 1973. And our morning man looked like Herschel Bernardi. I mean, he was already bald and with a mustache and he was like 32 years old. He looked 50. You remember that Harry Chapin song, W.O.L.D.? It's like, well, that was this guy. And. Our station, we were just this shack in the middle of a cow pasture with our four towers. And we were right next to a junior high. And We had a window in the booth. We could look out at the junior high. And kids who would come early to school would walk across the field and go to the radio station and peek in the window and watch the disc jockey and i'm looking at this 32 year old guy who looks 50 and these 13 year old uh girls with you know pimples on their face you know uh with their noses pressed against the window and i thought to myself jesus christ is this what i want my life to be is this what i want to do my whole life uh so that was like the first indication that maybe this was not the career path for me and then around the same time i went to the movies one night and sleeper the woody allen movie had just come out everyone in the theater is laughing and having a good time and i thought to myself wait a minute this guy's writing sight gags he's got a story he's got uh laughs coming at him that he can actually hear. Meanwhile, I'm sitting in a cow pasture trying to be funny over every record uh, for eight people, and four of them are probably, you know, 7-Eleven night managers who are tied up in the back after their uh, convenience store was being robbed. Like, again, what's wrong with this picture? And that's when I decided that... Um, maybe I should try writing. And I know this is going to be a long-winded answer to your simple question, but I was also in the Army Reserves at the time uh, to avoid getting drafted because my draft number was four, and I would have been the first person sent to Vietnam. So I got in an Armed Forces Radio Reserve unit, and every summer we had to have a two-week summer camp. During the summer camp of 1973, I met a new recruit in the unit, David Isaacs. It turns out he too had designs of becoming a writer. David at the time was working at ABC in Hollywood in the long since obsolete film shipping department. And when, uh, Summer camp was over. I went back to San Bernardino and soon after got fired, which was a familiar pattern for me. And uh, and I went back to Los Angeles to live with my parents to send out more tapes to try to get another radio job. And I called David and I said, hey, I want to try writing a script. You want to write it with me? We got together at the Hamburger Hamlet, also now obsolete. Uh, on Sunset Boulevard, and we decided to, to partner up. Now, at the time, neither of us knew anything about writing. Neither of us had taken a single writing course. And we decided, well, let's write a pilot about two kids in college because that was the sum total of our life experience. I then had to go to Hollywood where on uh, the remainder table of a Hollywood bookstore, they had tv scripts the way there would be old books on a remainder table for two dollars well they were two dollar tv scripts and i bought an odd couple script brought it back home and opened it up it's like oh okay this is what the format is interior madison apartment night and uh so we saw the format and we sat down and wrote this pilot that probably would have cost 70 million dollars in 1970 money to uh to produce uh and we were done we were writers we sent it out and needless to say no one was remotely interested but we had a good time writing it and wanted to continue to do more and uh i had met At that time, a writer who was somewhat successful, his name is Frank Buxton. He ironically uh, wrote on The Odd Couple, along with some other shows. And he said, look, if you want to break in, the way to do it is you have to write a script from an existing show. And send that around. So at the time. We thought, well, we love the Mary Tyler Moore Show. That's that's our favorite. And by the way, we decided to write TV instead of movies because we figured since we didn't know what the hell we were doing, it might be easier to master a 40-page script than a 120-page script. And at the time, this was the early 1970s, it was truly a golden age of television comedy, You had All in the Family and the Mary Tyler Moore Show, Odd Couple, MASH, Rhoda, Maud, Jefferson's eventually. So it was a great time, Bob Newhart Show, a great time to try to break in. So we would get together on Saturday nights at nine o'clock when the Mary Tyler Moore Show was on. And this was before DVRs. So I had a cassette recorder and we would hold a microphone up to the speaker and we would do an audio recording of the Mary Tyler Moore show. Then we would sit down and write a detailed outline based on the show we had just seen. And we did that week after week after week until eventually we started figuring out the patterns and figuring out how they broke stories and what things they did and what things they didn't. Uh, Fortunately for me at the time, I didn't have a girlfriend, so it was no problem spending Saturday night uh, holding a silver dollar microphone to a speaker for half an hour. Uh, Had I been getting laid, I might be a Benny Hanushev today. I don't know. But uh, when you
1: when you when you mentioned all those shows uh, in the, in the, the the area where you were you were watching those shows wasn't that the point where comedy uh was was becoming a little more sophisticated with sitcoms
2: oh very much so yes because prior to the 1970s and CBS in particular headed by Fred Silverman Comedies were rural based. You had Green Acres and Beverly Hillbillies, Mm -hmm. shows like that, Petticoat Junction. Uh, The one oasis, I guess, would be The Dick Van Dyke Show. And that was the show that in the 60s really inspired me to be a writer, Uh, not only because it was smart and it was funny but I was in love with Laura Petrie, and the thought that you could get a girl like Laura Petrie by being a comedy writer was very encouraging to me, you know, that you didn't have to throw a spiral to get a girl like that. Uh, but like I said, that was sort of an oasis all on its own and, and the rest was very rural and kind of corn So, uh, the 1970s was this real renaissance of television comedy.
1: Would Would Norman Lear be the if we said Vince Scully was the was the the king of baseball broadcasters? Would Norman Lear be that sort in comedy writing?
2: No, Larry Gelbart comedy? would. Larry Gelbart.
1: Okay, Mash,
2: right? Mash, and what he I- also wrote Tootsie. Oh God. Uh, Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, uh, and a number of others. He's the, the greatest comedy writer I've ever been fortunate enough to meet.
1: Wow. So how, how, do you, how do you get involved with MASH and Cheers and those other shows?
2: Well, when we wrote our Mary Tyler Moore show, we uh, got a, an agent who is actually not much of an agent um, and we sent it around. We got rejected by the Mary Tyler Moore show. We got rejected by a number of other shows. And we said, all right, we are going to take two years and we are just going to write spec script after spec script, after spec script. And somebody somewhere in two years is going to recognize that we have a kernel of talent. So we wrote a, Spec Rhoda, which got rejected. Ironically, the showrunner who rejected our Rota has been my neighbor for the last 40 years. She lives just a couple of houses down and we've become good friends. And it's a running joke between us that I will say to her, Charlotte, just read it one more time. You know, I, I, I think there's something there. You know, I think we wrote Brenda, really funny. There may be some story problems, but just read it one more time. Uh, And then one day uh, my mom was playing golf. And uh, she was joined by a couple of other people. And one announced that he was the story editor of this brand new show called The Jeffersons. And she said, oh, my wife is a, my wife, my my son is this wonderful writer. And, uh, you know, and he was like, oh, God, okay. And he just said, all right, well, have him call me. So I called him and he said, do you have a spec script? And I said, yes, I do. And he says, send the spec script. And if I like it, we'll talk. So I did. I sent the spec Mary Tyler Moore show and he really liked it. And invited us to come in and pitch story ideas for the Jeffersons. And they bought one of the stories. So that's how we broke in. And based on that, we were able to get freelance assignments on other shows. And we were able to get like an actual agent who was decent. And as luck would have it, because so much of this is luck. Think about it. You know, if my mom played tennis, none of this would have happened. And the agent that we chose, since we had a number of opportunities, we chose this one particular agent. Uh, She moved to a different agency. And the new agency that she was with also had as a client, Gene Reynolds, who was the showrunner of MASH. And Larry Gelbart had just left MASH after the fourth season. So Gene was looking for some new writers. And uh had lunch with our agent, and our agent pitched us, and we sent a sample of our work, which he liked and so we met with Gene, and we pitched him story ideas, and he bought one and the episode that he bought there are actually two subplots in it: one was that a gas heater blows up, and Hawkeye is temporarily blind, and the second Based on something that I had heard, which happened in the Far East Network, is they would play games, baseball games. They would broadcast baseball games live, but over in the Far East Network, live meant like 2 o'clock in the morning. And then they would replay the games again at noon. And the uh, the people who worked at the Far East Network, who were up all night hearing the game, originally would then go off and make bets with people in the morning on that particular game, <laughs> knowing of course the outcome. So we did that with, with Frank and Hawkeye and uh, BJ and Klinger, Radar, having to like simulate a baseball broadcast to try to fool Frank. So those were the the two plots in that particular episode. And that became our golden ticket, that, that script. And I'm very proud of it to this day. One of the things that we discovered when we were actually writing the script was that there was a lot of funny stuff because we'd worked out this story with Gene. There was a lot of funny stuff of Hawkeye blind being in OR and Hawkeye being in the mess tent, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And we thought, you know, there's nowhere here where Hawkeye actually talks about what it's like to be blind, what he's going through. So we decided to write a speech. And we thought, you know what? If they don't like the speech, they could just take it out. You know, we're not changing the story or anything. So. We wrote this speech and it took us like a weekend to write this speech. There's probably 60 different drafts and we'd be in a restaurant. and We would write down a line on a napkin and all like that. And eventually we turn in the script with a speech and Gene Reynolds was completely blown away by the speech. And I think that's what really did it for us. Because he just kept feeding us more scripts to write after that, and I'm very proud to say that the speech that Alan Alda delivers in that episode is word for word our first draft.
1: Wow, that's outstanding. Yeah. You mentioned some of the characters on on Mash, and, and, and we we've mentioned you've been, you've written for Cheers and The Simpsons and and Frasier. It from from a writer's standpoint. Is it is it like a target-rich environment to have an ensemble cast that you're not you're not pigeonholed into just pushing one particular actor or character? Uh,
2: yes, as long as the uh, ensemble cast is great, <laughs> and we've been very fortunate to work on shows with amazing casts. So if you're on, uh, say, Cheers, you have Ted Danson, you have Shelley Long, you have Kelsey Grammer, George Wendt. You had great people to, to go to. Same thing on Frasier. Like, oh, my God, to have David Hyde Pierce and John Mahoney and Perry Gilpin and Jane Leaves. I mean, you know, this was, you know, the, you know, Mount Rushmore of supporting comedy players. So, uh, so that that really helped. Um, we've only on a couple of occasions written shows for stars, and uh, that has been, I would say, mixed results with that.
1: Since you mentioned Shelley Long, and and looking back at Mash, when McLean Stevenson left Mash, and Shelley Long left Cheers. How much of a challenge is that for for the writers, the producers, the, the the whole the whole company?
2: Well, I would say it was a bigger challenge for Cheers because the Sam and Diane relationship was truly the core of that show, and to lose Shelley there was a lot of apprehension that the show ultimately would fizzle and fail after another year or so. so we had to get the absolute right person and we had to get somebody who was very different the character and the actress and everything had to be different so it's not like we're just doing Shelley Long 2.0 and when we got Kirstie Alley uh originally the thought was that she was going to take over the bar and that she was going to be a a martinet and that's what we wrote if you'll notice the beginning of season six the first few episodes where she appears that that's what we wrote and it just wasn't clicking uh she just wasn't funny and we knew that Kirstie was funny. It's not her fault. It was ours. And there was an episode where she was frustrated and became unglued over something. And she was very funny. And a light bulb went off. We all said, that's it. Let's make her a complete and utter mess. And that's what we did. And we pivoted in that direction and Kirstie became very, very, very funny. And the show managed it in a way it added new life and new chemistry. And instead of it fizzling, I think it sort of recharged the show and kept it going for a number of years
1: are you ever surprised that somebody is, is, is sort of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, but becomes really popular and and maybe you write a little bit more for them. I'm thinking of what, what was the vision of George went as norm in cheers because that bit where he comes in and, and gives a one liner when they say norm, when he enters the bar really became part, part of the hook of the show.
2: When we first did the show, we started filming like in July and the show wasn't going to premiere until September. So for the first seven or eight episodes, the audience would only see the pilot. We we would show them a 10 minute truncated version of the pilot so that they had some orientation of what they were seeing. But then when there would be the norm entrance, most of the time they died. And I remember George coming up to me going, oh, this doesn't work. And I said, George, this is a running bit. They don't know. They, they haven't seen the show. They don't know this is a running bit. When this actually goes on television, this will work. Yes, it didn't make the 200 people in the audience laugh. But it will make, hopefully, the millions of people who watch the show laugh. And uh, and that proved to be true. And, of course, by the end, oh, my God, it was just ridiculous. Uh, we didn't even have to earn the laughs. He would come in, afternoon, everybody, Norm, you know, uh, what's up, Norm? And he could say uh, sauerkraut. And that would get a big laugh. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> So it, it went from getting no laughs to getting laughs it shouldn't have.
1: Can, can you tell the listeners why you had to put a disclaimer on at the beginning of Cheers?
2: Yeah, we filmed the show in front of a live studio audience. And we were getting complaints that we were leaning too hard on the laugh machine. And we were going we're not using the laugh machine. These are our actual laughs. So what we decided to do was put a disclaimer at the top of the show saying cheers is filmed in front of a live studio audience to just hammer home the point that no, these laughs are real people.
1: (laughs) That was a great show. It's kind of uh... It's kind of ironic when you take a a show like M.A.S.H., a very serious subject, the uh, Korean War, and and find the humor in it. Was there ever any resistance in getting that show on the air?
2: No, because the movie had preceded us. The Robert Altman movie written by Ring Lardner Jr., uh, and that was a hit. And again, it came out at the right time, there was the clear parallel to the Vietnam War that was raging during that period. So, no. But I think MASH is unique in television in that it's really a show built around an existential dilemma. You have these doctors who are there uh, against their will whose mission is to save lives in an environment where the goal is to kill as many people as possible. And so that was the crux of M.A.S.H., and I don't think you can do that on any other series, and it makes M.A.S.H. very unique. You know, Friends became a hit, and there were 14 Friends clones And Cheers became a hit. and there were 15 Cheers clones. But you really can't do another M.A.S.H.
1: So with the movie coming out first, and that was such a a big hit, were you at all painted into a corner with your characters or, or anything involving that show? Because we have seen other movies where people have tried to come back with a sitcom on TV following that, and they've bombed.
2: Well, again, the genius of Larry Gelbart and uh, Gene Reynolds, who put it together, also the casting. I mean, what a coup to get Alan Alda, and and everybody uh, in that original cast. Um, you know, it didn't do all that well the first season, and if you watch the first season episodes there's a learning curve they're playing around until they can really find the tone which they finally do later on in that first season but uh bill uh paley's wife bill paley at the time was the man who owned cbs and his wife loved the show and they were originally on sunday night it was not a great time slot but she said This is a great show. you got to keep it. And the following year, they moved the time slot to Saturday night in probably the greatest single lineup of any network in the history of television when this was the lineup. All in the Family, MASH, Mary Tyler Moore Show, Bob Newhart Show, Carol Burnett Show.
1: Have to beat that lineup.
2: (laughs) I mean, you talk about a murderer's row. And so in that second season, the audience really discovered MASH. And by then, they really had a handle on just how to do that show. But you're you're right to, to go back to a point, though, that we had in that MASH was the only show I've ever worked on that's frozen in time. You know, you can't move them to a new apartment. You know, on Cheers, you could introduce new characters and Frasier could marry Lilith and Woody could marry Kelly and you could bring this character in and that character out. But, you know, MASH was supposed to take place over the course of maybe one year. And the show lasted four times longer than the entire Korean conflict. So in that regard, uh, we, were, we were stuck. We couldn't change the setting. We couldn't really change the relationships. And, uh, and so, th- so that, was, that was very difficult.
1: Whose idea was it to give Klinger the uh, Toledo Mud Hens hat?
2: Well, he will disagree with me, but if you look carefully, he is not wearing a Toledo Mud Hens hat. He is wearing a Texas Ranger hat. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But he did grow up in Toledo, and uh I know the Toledo Mud Hens very well, having done three years of minor league baseball in the International League where we would go into Toledo to old Ned Skeldon stadium and face the dreaded mud hens.
1: Was there a character in any of these shows that surprised you who, who became popular that you really didn't see it at the
2: beginning? Not like say the Fonz, you know, or, Michael J. Fox on Family Ties, where it was like a big surprise that there was this breakout star, you know, Urkel on Family Matters. Um, So, no, I would say probably David Hyde Pierce becoming so popular. On the other hand, uh, David Hyde Pierce was so incredibly great <laughs> that it's, it's no surprise to me. If you would say to me, okay, take a look at the Cheers cast, and one of these cast members is going to go on and have a huge movie career and is even going to be nominated for an Academy Award, who do you think it is? I don't think I would say Woody. I think I would have said Ted or Shelley.
1: Interesting. The um, The art of writing. Uh,
2: you ever have writer's block? No, I. Well, there was a time when David and I worked on a show. For a star that was a very trying experience and we were kind of burned out and we just took like a few months to just sit and do nothing but then when it came time to write a script having had a few months to recover we were right back into it you know part of the thing in television is they pay you Not only for your talent, but for your professionalism, because you have to create on demand. You can't wait for the muse to call. You go down for a run through at five o'clock and you go back up to the office and you don't go home until you fix that script. And if that means six o'clock in the morning, so be it. And then you're back in the office four hours later. So you learn to be creative. You have to, uh, if you have a cold, if you have a fight with your spouse, uh, if you're pissed at the network, if you're pissed at the actors, if the air conditioning goes out, if there's noise from a construction site across the way, whatever it is, Uh, You have to deliver on demand. Um, And so, no, I I think I'd like force myself not to have writer's block.
1: I I know you appreciate talent. You appreciate creativity. And a show that you did not work on, I, I, I know you have high regard for. Maybe you can explain why Friends worked so
2: well. I do have high regard for Friends. Um because first of all, the show was very funny, and all of the planets aligned, they got a wonderful group of young writers and six spectacular actors who were all funny and all attractive and it it just worked, and I think the premise. The idea of young people starting out where friends become basically your family uh, is a, a timeless premise. And I think as each new generation reaches that point in their lives, they really resonate with that show. And so I think Friends is the kind of show that generation after generation, uh, people are going to continue to discover and continue to love.
1: The laugh machine you talked about earlier—that's that's not always for the audience, is it?
2: No, uh, there's like a lot of shows will—they call it sweeten. And I and I noticed this on the new Frasier, which I had nothing to do with, by the way. Nothing to do with. But you just see the laugh machine hitting on like every line. And I think it really puts off a lot of viewers who are now savvy enough to know of the, the laugh machine. And it's intrusive. And in a way, it's kind of insulting. you know it's like oh uh, uh but isn't have, it there time, tell isn't me what's funny
1: it, isn't it there at times for the actors themselves? What do you mean i I thought in our past conversations, you mentioned that sometimes the laugh track is there for for the listener or not the listener, but the the actor to play off of, or am I wrong?
2: No, because Wouldn't laugh be the, track, track. the laugh track is uh put on later. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My bad. My bad.
1: How about some of the plays you've written? What don't you have a Christmas play coming out?
2: I do have a Christmas play called On the first Day of Christmas, which is being What's the done... chances of that happening? Fars what? Day. Yeah.
1: I said what's the chances of you coming out with the first Day of Christmas? I like that.
2: <laughs> well, uh it's being done in six theaters this year. Uh, wow. it's, hopefully it's going to become a, a perennial, but it's going to be done outside of Los Angeles and San Antonio and in Philadelphia, I think, and outside of Cleveland and Ottawa and, and someplace else. So that's, that's going to be fun. They only do it in December. It's this weird thing. Like no one ever does that play in May or April, but they all seem to want to do it in December for some reason. Well,
1: something like that, a play that you write, Any? I know you mentioned this earlier, it's easier to write 40 pages than 120. What if something like that, somebody came to you and said, hey, hey Ken, let's make that into a movie.
2: Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> And <laughs> you'd be excited. That'd be great. It's one of my yeah. goals in life is to be paid twice for the same script.
1: What's the chances? I mean, if is it it's is it something that that you pursue or do people come and pursue you?
2: I have an agent now who is looking into that. I hadn't really yeah. pursued it very much. It's interesting. Uh-huh the only overture to do one of my plays was Hallmark and they wanted so many changes that I said, no, that's just, that's not my play. It's not a Hallmark mm-hmm. movie. You know, how many plays have you written? I think 14 or 15. Um. I have nine published.
1: What about what about your interact your interaction with the actors? You, you you're working on these sitcoms and obviously there are egos involved. How often do the actors you know kind of push you for, you know, give me a few more lines or do you think we should change this? How often does that happen?
2: Well, it depends. I've been very fortunate that the shows I've worked on like Cheers and Frasier and MASH are very collaborative. And the actors have respect for the writers. We have respect for the actors. And they, they're they the ones that have to go out there and, and do it. So uh, it's whatever makes the script better. And I've become a director. I directed like over 60 episodes. And you really see the actor's side. And it's actually made me a better writer because I can think like an actor. I could think, you know, I mean, like little things. I remember I was directing an episode of Becker, and he's supposed to leave the diner. It was Ted Danson playing Becker. He's supposed to leave the diner on this punchline where he's supposed to get it from the table and Deliver this punchline and exit. But the show was set during the winter. And Ted said, I have to go to the coat rack and put on my coat. And you're going, yeah, (laughs) we have to we have to make adjustments. Yeah, you're right. We we have to figure in the wardrobe and the coat because that's. Real life. Uh, you know, you know, what what you never you never want to hear an actor say, I don't mind if they say, What's my motivation? But you never want the actor to go, why would I say this? Why why would I possibly say this? Because if they ask that question, 99.99999% of the time, they're right. They're right, it's not something that they would say, or it would be something that's too caustic or too hurtful. And sometimes a writer will put something down because it's funny, the joke is funny, but you have to think in terms of the real human being saying it, going, well, why would I be this mean? why would I say this to this person's face? And they're right. And so it's, it's really helped me as a writer always thinking about, okay, so what if I was directing this? <laughs> you know, uh, how, do I, how do I justify why the actor should be saying this or that?
1: Before, before I let you get away, do you have a favorite episode of any of the work you've done?
2: I'd say my favorite MASH episode is called Point of View that is seen through the eyes of a patient, which was a very unique episode. It turned out real well. Uh, for Cheers, uh, I would say there's an episode called uh, To All the Girls I've Loved Before. I think it's like year seven, eight maybe, and it's Frasier's Bachelor Party. That was fun because we didn't work off of any outline. We just started writing it. And for Frasier, an episode called Room Service, where Niles sleeps with Lilith. Those would be my three favorites of those shows.
1: Want to plug your uh, podcast again before sure we it
2: away? Sure do, especially since you have, you know, as you say, 900 million subscribers. Uh, it's called Hollywood and Levine. And it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I could use a five-star review as well. Uh, and it's more stories like this in details. And uh, yeah, in well, you, get, you
1: get five stars from us. Well, thank you. you you've, you've, you've led an interesting life from the baseball broadcast booth to writing for some of the great sitcoms of all time. A playwriter. I didn't even get I mentioned it earlier, but we didn't get to talk about it. Uh how about a little plug for what you do as a cartoonist now?
2: Yeah, I do cartoons for the New Yorker, New Yorker magazine. And they show up, they pop up from time to time. Uh, but that's been really fun as well. Because as a cartoonist, uh, that's kind of the you know, holy grail is to get a cartoon in the New Yorker and to have Several of them and to just sort of be one of the New Yorker cartoonists uh, to me as has been a a great thrill. Plus, it's kind of nice to have a new career at 70. Wow!
1: comedy writer, Major League Baseball broadcaster, cartoonist, playwright, director. I'm embarrassed because all I could do is a couple things like this and tie my shoes. You you embarrass me. (laughs) Ken, thanks for the time. You're, you're the best. I appreciate visiting with you. And I know our, our, our listeners enjoyed it too.
0: Thanks. Uh, my pleasure, Jerry.
1: Ken Levine. Dave D'Agostino, it's all yours.
0: Yeah, and hang with us for a second, Ken, as we, we close out here. We um, I, I've got a question for you. And now you do have one more subscriber because I subscribed to your podcast while we were on the show. So you got one more. All right. And I encourage – I, I want all of our audience listeners here, 74 countries, subscribe to that podcast between now and Friday. So hopefully you get a bunch more coming in. But I have, I have a question about your writing. Um, you know, Famously on, on Seinfeld, Larry David said the George character was a lot of him. Were there any characters that you infused a lot of Ken Levine in over, over your career uh, when some of these sitcoms or movies?
2: There was a short series that my partner and I had on CBS called Big Wave Dave's which was on in the summer of like 93, was um, Adam Arkin, Jane Kaczmarek, Kurtwood Smith, David Morse, Patrick Breen. It was kind of a midlife crisis where three guys from Chicago in their 40s decided to check it all and open a surf shop in Hawaii. And uh, the Adam Arkin character was, <laughs> was me yeah yeah
0: i love that and uh well I, i'm, I'm going to start listening to your podcast today i appreciate you sharing that with our audience and jerry another wonderful interview um
1: thanks and by the way when when ken used to write about the academy awards it was comedy gold he could he could really nail some people if if you could find those i i recommend reading those
2: Yeah, i don't read i don't write them anymore because I know in today's, I in today's woke world, oh, i yeah, kidding, yeah. I would just get crucified for writing some of the stuff that I wrote. And ironically, the stuff that I wrote for those, uh, you know, bitchy, snarky reviews, there were newspapers that picked it up. There was like the Toronto Star and London Times and stuff like that would reprint my, um, my reviews. So at the time they were mainstream. <laughs> now, That's like I said, I would, just, I would be crushed if
0: I uh, yeah. did one of those.
1: Yeah. Sad state we're in.
0: Yep. Never I, never on this show or this network. We, uh, you could tell by our sponsor, blackout coffee, be awake, not woke. We, uh, we, we, we protect that genius here. I promise you. But, uh, Jerry, any, any final questions for Ken? I mean, wonderful interview. I mean, you always
1: what's do it, that. What's he going to do next if he has any time?
0: Oh, I know.
1: He probably wants to get to
2: dinner. Uh, yes, as a matter of fact. <laughs> That's <laughs> next. Thanks, Ken. That's
0: <laughs> nice. Well, we'll See let you in, And you could, be, you could be cooking based on what he said early on in the interview. With, um, so with, with that, to our audience, episode 350 here, this is Jerry Chupiano. On the record with Jerry Truppiano, Ken Levine, wonderful interview. Audience members, make sure you subscribe to his podcast. Uh, We're counting on you to do that. Support our friends at Blackout Coffee as well. They gave our listenership uh, an opportunity for 20% off, capital D-A-V-I-D, number 20. You'll get your 20% off as much coffee as you want to get. Pass it out to friends with the holiday coming up, 15% in perpetuity. To our almost 60,000 subscribers, thank you so much. Give this one five stars. It won't be hard to do. Write some great comments because we do battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in Major League Baseball. And, Ken, you were global before, but our 74 countries are going to just put another exclamation point on that. Thanks so much for your time tonight and being so open with the interview. My pleasure, guys.